Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try and settle that? Why can't you be normal like everybody else? All right. Well, your parents want to. The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Hey there, all you entrepreneurs. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM, based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, or you're thinking about becoming one, listen up, because this show is for you. The show has two goals. First, share helpful information and resources. You know, if I can help just one of you entrepreneurs out there to not make some of the mistakes I've made or that my clients have made, then I've been successful. The second goal is to inspire. I don't know about you, but I found sometimes being an entrepreneur confusing. It's often lonely. You have no idea sometimes if you're on the right track or not or where to turn for good advice. So to help answer that, and it, I have guests on the show every week who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Jesse Berg. He is a very accomplished young man, author, editor, publisher, and head of storytelling at his own firm, Jesse B. Creative. He is an award-winning children's book author. He's also the creative director for You Wish, a company founded by the former NBA all-star Baron Davis. He's the youngest African-American NPR Foundation board member. He started out in college as a successful basketball player, hopscotch from there to Silicon Valley, and finally pivoted to pursue his true passion of storytelling, for young and old audiences. His company is a children's book publisher and its aim is to make children's picture books by marginalized groups that largely feature those marginalized groups. So Jesse, with that introduction, thanks so much for being on The Savvy Entrepreneur. Welcome to the show. Hello, Doris. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. My goodness, a publisher. Talk a little bit about your business. What do you do exactly and who do you do it for? Yeah, um, on the the publishing side, what we do is we create books, just as you mentioned so eloquently, that um, reflect marginalized communities, but also are created by people within that lived experience, which we're really, really passionate about. We think books and content comes out richer more quality when sort of the folks who are closest to that experience get a chance to speak for themselves as opposed to, um, you know, someone speaking for them or or reaching across the aisle. And so we think that gives kids a more honest reflection of um, just the spectrum of different communities and different lived experiences um, when you can hear it straight from the folks who live it. So that that's largely the goal there to increase diversity, equity and inclusion across children's content. Yeah. Well, so what exactly does a publisher do and what doesn't it do? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, a part of it's a little bit like an A&R for music. You you sort of scout and you go through. A, I look at a lot of artists portfolios, about 500 a week um, for illustrators specifically, always looking for who has sort of the right style to maybe match with a manuscript we've already acquired or one that we're developing that that process of illustrator and script is I imagine it's much much like a casting agent in film where you're trying to find the right person for the right role. It's very much a lock and key situation. And so, um, I mean, that's a part of it because acquisitions is a lot, is a big deal. Um, also developing obviously in-house content matters a lot as well. And then the amplifications of the stories, like what's your strategy for getting them out? And we'll talk about this later, but we're a B2B um, centric company, which means our primary target customer isn't actually individuals. The it's actually schools and libraries and ah. so we go for bulk sale first. Yeah, because I've talked to other people who have written books, not necessarily children's books, but the art of promoting your book, I suspect, is quite um, quite a different thing. I mean, you can write a great book, but if nobody reads it and finds it, it's it's not so useful, right? Exactly. I mean, if you if imagine being an author a lot like being a chef, I mean, you cook this food in hopes that people will enjoy it and, and find some type of substance and value in it. Um, you, you wouldn't want to cook it in a vacuum and then have nobody actually be able to enjoy what you worked so hard to make. And so authorship is the same way, I imagine. Talk a little bit about your journey. I mean, you were a basketball player. So, so I read on your website, a successful power forward, I think. Um, how in the world did you go from being a college athlete, which is a very difficult thing to do, to a children's book author and publisher? My goodness. And, and Silicon Valley along the way. Talk about that, that journey. That, that, I, I'm dying to hear the story. <laughs> Well, in college, while I was playing basketball at UC Santa Barbara, I was given a gift for the first time in my entire basketball career, which has been most of my cognizant life. <laughs> I um, actually had an injury that required a minor surgery. I'd never had surgery before. Um, I had never had an injury before, like not anything serious. And so what that gave me in my junior year was a chance for the first time in my life to step off the hamster wheel of doing, doing, doing practice, weights, conditioning, booster events, games, uh, you know, all of the things that come with being a collegiate athlete and actually re-choose my sport. Do I really want to continue doing this post-college or is this a good opportunity to re-examine what lights me up? During that recovery period, which was only eight weeks, so uh, not, not that long in the grand scheme of things, of, if it was an ACL tear, for example, it would have been six months. But during those eight weeks, I got a chance to really do some self-reflecting. Um, if I'm being honest, I went through something that I can now identify as a mild depression because I was having identity separation crisis. Basically, I had aligned my identity with what I do, who I do with what I do. And oh, I get time, it. There was I get it. Exactly. There was a fracture. And I had aligned my value with sort of my, my craft. And it was sort of my first time getting a chance to separate the two and really think about who I am beyond what I do. And um, when I really thought about that, what do I want to give? What dish do I feel like I'm meant to bring to the potluck of life? 
it was. Um, <laughs> I love that expression. <laughs> it was storytelling for young audiences. That's what lights me up. That's what gets me going. And I, I've never regretted the choice to walk away and, and, and continue to move deeper into this path. The reality is it's like the commercial on TV, right? It's like most of these, all these athletes are going to go pro in something other than sports. And I can only imagine what a challenge it is for people who are so immersed. You know, I saw it with my daughter who was into horseback riding and said, you know, it becomes your entire, it's not just the amount of time and hours of practicing you spend, but it's also your entire social network because it's, you know, because it is so all consuming. So yeah, I can see why you say it was a gift because for a lot of kids, I'm sure it doesn't really hit them until, it's senior night and they walk out onto the court or the field or whatever. And then, okay, now what? Right. Exactly. And the, and the gift wasn't so much the pivot away from basketball. It was just the chance to actually choose it with intentionality as a career path. If it was what I wanted to do, well, here's a chance to double down and, and really make it into, to a career if that's sort of in the cards, but Also, if not, then here's also an opportunity for a departure into something you're more passionate about. Well, so how and when did you decide to start Jesse B. Creative? Well, that came with another departure. So after (laughs) sports, I poured a lot of my energy into um, what happened is after my junior season, I wrote my coach a handwritten letter and I told him that I will not be coming back for my senior season of basketball. I need to learn how to become a writer and a storyteller the same way I had to learn how to become an athlete. There are fundamentals, there are techniques, there's time on task. I had none of that. And I was about to be in the real world soon. Um, So I just wanted to practice, you know, cut my teeth a little bit and and learn the craft, study, read some books, all of that stuff. Um, And so I did that in my first job, fresh out of college, while I was still basically trying to improve as a storyteller, was working at Google um, in Mountain View. California. And oh, wow. Yeah. So very fortunate to have that. I always say Google was my grad school because they taught me a lot about that I would use later in my business about like company structure or um, team building uh, processes um, and just a, w- a way to go about business that I, I think I resonated with and still do a lot of those values and principles. Um, but again, I was working at Google and, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a job that is very comfortable in many ways. Um, 16 different cafeterias on main campus, you know, transportation to and from campus, um, uh, gyms all over the place, doggy daycare, you know, childcare. I mean, just about anything you can, laundromat, just about anything you can imagine that you might need was made readily available to you. But I kept getting that sort of nagging feeling that I got playing basketball where I was like, I don't feel like I'm making a unique contribution. I'm doing something that may benefit my immediate circle, which is awesome. But in the end, it felt a little selfish, Doris, if I'm being honest. It felt like I sort of took my first world advantages and parents who valued education and invested in that and sacrificed for for me to have that. And I just kind of took my ball and went home. Um, I didn't really feel like I was doing anything that uniquely impacted people directly, should I say larger and outside of of myself and my circle. And so after my first book was finished, I decided to 
quit to try to raise money to self-publish that, that first children's book. Um, I, qu- I was quit for three months after a year and a half. I did not raise the money that I needed <gasps> to raise. And oh, I was, you're uh, kidding. I kid you not. I was a young 20-something millage, 20-something. I was broke in a very expensive San Francisco Bay Area living economy. And I had to go back to work. <laughs> so I went back. I was very lucky that they gave me my old job back and even gave me some, some other cool stuff to do while I was there. Um, did that for another year and a half. And then I, I quit again to, to raise again, <laughs> which family at this point, I'm, I'm sure thought I was probably just on the moon to quit Google twice to go into the arts, right? To quit Google twice to go into the arts. It's like, oh goodness. It's like, Jesse, you finally made it, Google, (laughs) what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? But I just knew, I just, and you know, I do have a roadmap for this. Um, We can talk about this a little further down the line, but my mom did something very similar to launch her publishing career. And I'm sure she modeled that sort of behavior of Google's not going anywhere. You know, companies like that aren't going anywhere. If I'm going to try something and, and sort of maybe even dig myself into a hole, my, my early to mid 20s with no kids is the, and no mortgage is the time to do this. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like well, you're true. Get more involved the later on you get in life. So, um, so, yeah. And then the second time I did raise enough money and then that's how the first book sold. And then the second book won some awards and the third book won some awards and it started becoming a self-sustaining like thing financially over time. Wow. So were your, were your, all of your books self-published? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty intentional for me. Um, Well, let let me, let me backtrack that for a second, because while I was at Google, of course I was thinking path of least resistance. I'll just finish my book, submit it to some publishers or agents and see if we get any traction. Well, after submitting to about, roughly 200 publishers and agents combined and getting either no response or all rejection letters. Um, I figured I have a whole mountain of rejection letters. I figured, Ouch. It was like, oh, for sure. And, and I think the interesting thing is this isn't a unique experience for a lot of creatives and a lot of authors specifically. Um, yeah. But I felt like the book had some value, even if it wasn't going to reach a bajillion people, maybe it was just going to inspire 10 kids to read. And I felt like that was still worth it to try. So, um, yeah, I started the publishing company to sort of house these outfits. And then once the book was done, I submitted it to a few awards and then it won, you know, the it placed in the Paris Book Festival Award and so in Los Angeles as well and a couple of other places. And then, you know, there were opportunities to, to go the traditional publishing route. But at that point, I, I kind of liked being involved from end to end. And it wasn't really the time for me to explore that option. Um, and there's a very intentional reason why I wanted to start a publishing company for equity access and to create opportunities for others. Interesting. Well, so you, your publishing house, you're now looking for other authors who were like you, right? 100%. I mean, you know, whose, whose stories aren't typically centered in the publishing realm. Um, who need help getting from A to Z uh, in terms of what it is that they're building and they're passionate about. And then the flip side of that is when our plate is full, so all publishers have a basically a maximum amount of bets they can make within a given quarter. And for the bigger publishers, that's gonna be more. Maybe they can take on 20 new titles. Maybe they can acquire 50 new titles for smaller publishers and imprints that may be something like five or seven, but everybody has a threshold. Um, and I think once, 
most publishers hit that okay. threshold, they just close the door. But what I want what, to What's do, that threat? Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to ask you what that threshold is based on. I mean, is it based just based on the pure budget. bandwidth to be able? I'm sorry. Budget and bandwidth. Yeah. How many can, how many books can we afford to acquire? And how many books can we respectably service with quality in terms of development, editorial, amplification, book design within a given quarter? Oh. Yeah. It's just bandwidth and budget. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. But every every publisher has them. Um, and but what typically happens is the door closes once they reach that threshold. But I felt like there's going to be more stories of value than we can afford to or have the bandwidth to publish. So I also opened up a part of our business to publish your services. Like, look, if our plate is full and we can't actually afford to take you on, even if we would love to, we still want to help you get from A to Z, even if it's not with us. And so, like, how can we offer some a la carte services that may make sense for what you need to put your book in the best light to actually have a chance out there? Because, um, the, the percentages are really grim. It's, it's like blowing up the Death Star. Like the percentages. Well, well, so, so what are the percentages? I have no idea. I, I don't know this part of the industry at all. And I bet a lot of the listeners don't either. Yeah. So submitting to a traditional publisher, you have less than a 5% chance. And these numbers are from Publishers Weekly. You have less than a 5% chance of getting um, picked up on the first round of review. So over 95% of books will get turned away from traditional publishing. Now, if you get wow. past that, now if you get past that first wave, then you have a sixty-seven chance, sixty-seven percent chance of getting picked up. So a lot of it is really getting past the gatekeepers. Now, who are they? They are typically the junior agents and the junior published editors um, within the larger houses, whose sole job it is to take the five hundred manuscripts that came in this week and put it in the yes pile, the no pile, or the maybe pile by Friday at five. Hi. They are, and we've spoken to a lot of these folks, and it makes total sense to me, a lot of times using um, shortcuts to figure out which scripts may make sense. For example, if you submitted your script with a, a few typos or you didn't submit it to the, to the formatting standard that they requested, immediately Gone. going into the slush, immediately going to the no pop. Wow. Um, because it's a level of professionalism and, and attention to detail. If you addressed your query letter as to whom it may concern or dear sir slash madam, immediately going into the no pop because wow. you, didn't take, you didn't take the time to figure out who you're talking to in this specific instance, as opposed to blanketing emails across all publishers. Um, wow. Sounds like yeah. the hiring process. Like, <laughs> yeah. You don't meet the algorithm. You're out. You get gap in your resume. You're out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Not, not too dissimilar. Well, so how do you find authors for your publishing business do they know do they hear about you is it do you find them or some of both it's both people submit i find and then i also really enjoy like matching um like if, if someone has an awesome story or lived experience sometimes i'll work with them to develop an original script even if they're not traditionally a writer um or they're not traditionally a children's book writer they just have a great story that I think would serve children really well. So um, you can think of us also as like an incubator because we get in on the ground floor and it's not just projects that are like already done and polished that we pick up. Sometimes it's people and stories that we want to get behind. And then we figure out together, what do we want to make? Oh, wow. So you're almost like doing like ghostwriting for at some 
It's well, it's it's more of a collaboration, and I, I let the sort of whoever is leading that, um, whoever story that we're telling, that they that make sure that they tell the story, and I'm not writing for them. But then we pair that with an illustrator as well. But also, I was very fortunate to um, basically when I moved back to the states from Dubai, <laughs> I was looking for you, you miss that amazing stuff in your journey, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can chat about that too. That's a whole chapter of, of the story. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um when I moved back, I was looking for a children's picture book community. It's not too hard to find like reading groups and critique groups for adult fiction and things like that on meetup.com and places like that. But I didn't really find anything specifically relegated to children's picture books. And a lot of folks that I know want to make them. And so yes, I started a group and I think we're over like 500 members strong now and a lot of great content too for the publishing company. I mean, the first three acquisitions came from folks in that group um, just because they were making amazing content and I could wow. not turn a blind eye to how awesome they were doing. So, you know, um, yeah, first time in debut author illustrators just with really strong stuff that we believe we can help help amplify. What are you looking for in an author or in a book manuscript? I mean, what what are some of the things that kind of tickle your interest and make you want to hear more? Um, specificity is one for sure. Uh, I believe the the general is in the specific. I think when you try to tell a general catch all story, you end up really not hitting too many people deeply. But I think if you tell a very specific story well then people can find their points of resonance and overlap with it. So I, I'm definitely looking for somebody who's not trying to write the, the every person story. They're trying to tell a story very specifically and try to do it to a high quality. Also, um, I'm a big fan, although it's not appropriate for every um, situation, I'm a big fan of humor as a vehicle for education and enlightenment. So not heavy handed or preachy, because I think that's a form of laziness. I think um, when you just lay it on <laughs> oh, top. Wow. Well, yeah, when you lay it on top, you didn't really take the time of massaging it into the meat, which is what is typically, you want the reader to feel like they're arriving at their own conclusions, that they're discovering, um, not that they're being dictated to. And, and so that's important as well, just like making sure that the layers of messaging, if there are any, are, um, you know, the, the, the nutrients are, are wrapped in, in something delicious. <laughs> and you, you are, you are magical with your metaphors. <laughs> I can, I can tell I you, really love, you, <laughs> love, you love the words. And uh, so that's a good thing because you're working with words all day long. Yeah. I mean, those, so those do, things. do you work only with black authors or African-American cool. authors or other kinds of marginalized groups as well? No, it's it's all marginalized groups, differently abled, um, obviously multicultural for sure. Um, I mean, diversity in the true form of the word. And so, you know, definitely not just any one marginalized group. Uh, we're really trying to get those stories that have largely been pushed to the fringe to be centered, to be highlighted, to be celebrated more often and done with quality and care and amplification. Well, it certainly is true. And I think those of you listening out there, if you think about the children's books that you've looked at for your kids that are on the, in the bookstores or promoted online, there's a real dearth of 
diversity in voices. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think what's even scarier, just looking at, and this is a stat from the CCBC, which tracks diversity in children's children's books, just looking at Black kids, uh, Black families and representation in children's picture books, over 50% of the children's picture books that feature Black characters are not written or illustrated by Black people. So wow. what does that typically What's the danger of that? Well, appropriation. I mean, if the extreme of it is minstrel shows and, and blackface and things like that. But even on the even on the less deep side of that spectrum, there's still a level of ignorance that is inherent with not having lived that experience. I mean, if if you're you're speaking to the black experience, but you don't have it, it's a, at all. Personally, it's a very specific American experience. And um, the danger also in that is that you're informing others, the readers, what the black experience might be like when again, you don't really know. So the same way I wouldn't know what, what the Asian American experience would be like. So right. I'm not trying to reach across the aisle and, and tell those stories and puppeteer for, for that walk of life. I think I know for a fact that there are so many gifted creators within each marginalized communities who have been banging down the doors to get opportunities to write their books and, and illustrate their books. And so there's no lack of, of, of talented, qualified, hungry, excited, passionate people in each marginalized community. Um, I think that's, that's been a myth for a while. That hasn't been my experience. Well, what do you look for with illustrators? Ah, yeah. I look for a specific voice voice, quote unquote, voice style that's been um, developed. So what I mean by that is they're not trying to do their best impersonation of Marvel, Marvel's aesthetic or Pixar's aesthetic or Disney's aesthetic. They've actually thought about how they want to represent characters and worlds visually. And you can tell that there's a sense of maturity in their own voice. I imagine it's the same way you would think about a singer, right? You want the singer to have a certain amount of presence, a certain amount of identity, almost like a fingerprint. And, and you want and, that. And, to, uh, and, and yet at the same time, you need a wide enough palette of mm -hmm. color, mm -hmm. whether it's vocal color or you, you need, you need to have enough diversity in your palette so that it's not boring either. So true. So true. You, I mean, some of the things that I look at specifically are character development. I look at environmental development. I look at just what you mentioned, coloring, shading, lighting, point of view. You almost would analyze it the same way you would cinematography in a sense. I mean, illustrators for picture books are essentially directors in their own right, where they have to choose exactly what angle and from what perspective you're going to see each scene and each bit of action. Is it going to be a bird's eye view? or an ant's eye view, will we be behind the character? Is it gonna be a close up? You know, like they have to think about that and play with a lot of different angles before they arrive at their conclusion. So I look at all of that for sure. And I'm always in awe of illustrators. I'm a big fan of, cause I can't draw. <laughs> yeah, well me either. Do you look for illustrators who are also from that marginalized group or is it more important do you think to just have the the match with the story that's being told. Absolutely prioritizing and looking for um, illustrators from marginalized communities um, globally, um, I think is, is really important, you know, and, and just because I know that by the numbers, they're getting fewer opportunities than their um, counterparts. So I want to make sure that we're, we're giving them a place to get paid work opportunities, breakthrough 
resume notches in terms of published books and things like that. Because once you have that rolling, it's so much easier to sell your second book than your first. Once uh-huh. you have something, you know, like that's for yeah. real and done and validated. No one wants to be the first, right? <laughs> yeah. They want to know somebody else's they had bought in before you. I've yeah. heard lots of entrepreneurs talk about that when it comes to finding investors for their company too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very true. Well, you know, we were talking about a little bit about what you look for. A lot of people I've talked to, maybe I've just deal with a lot of crazy people. I don't know. But a lot of people have said, oh, I would love to write a children's book. It must be so easy to write a children's book. I mean, you know, it's not so long and there's not that many words and, you know, why I could do that. So if it's so easy, why don't, why doesn't everybody do it? I think the sort of (laughs) illusion when it comes to children's picture books is exactly as you've stated, but what's really hard, what's really challenging is brevity. You don't get the word count to if you write a 50,000 word novel and one paragraph maybe isn't your best stuff, nobody's going to throw the book against the wall, but you can't afford to burn two pages of text or even one page of text in a children's picture book because of how condensed it needs to be. So the sort of refinement process is really quite, it's a very delicate, delicate science for lack of a better term. And it requires quite a bit of intention to whittle and refine and refine and refine so that you have the most word efficient version of whatever it is you're trying to convey. They really are kind of like the commercials of the publishing world. You know, when commercials hit and they're right, I mean, they, they just they live on in such an amazing space. So many commercials have, you know, pop up and pop away because it's, it's really not an, an easy craft. And part of the reason that it's not easy is exactly the reason people think it is, because it's so short. Try writing a, a shorter story versus a longer story, and you'll soon see that the length gives you room to play and to be imperfect and to go back and figure it out. The brevity is really quite a tight sandbox. And mm. you're dealing with 500 to 750 words in most cases to tell an entire narrative, grip people, keep them, educate them as well, make them laugh, make them feel in 500 words. I forget who the the famous person was that said, I would have written you a shorter letter if I'd had more time. Exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. I, I had a creative writing professor who I really enjoyed, but he would have us write, I don't know, 500 word essay or something. And then he'd say, okay, now I want you to go back and cut it in half. <laughs> so you really go through the process of weighing, what can I sneak into this to give it color, you know, without taking up a lot of words? I mean, just as we were talking about before, I mean, I firmly believe everybody has a, a, a very worthwhile and valuable story to tell. For all of us, it's just figuring out the best way to tell that story. Um, I think everybody I've met has a story that can serve and benefit others. Uh, It's just about how can we work together to get that in a format where it resonates, it sticks, it's efficient, like, you know, we've trimmed the excess, all of that good stuff. What do you think holds a lot of people back from actually writing their story? I mean, it was the same thing that that, that I've I've encountered personally. It's just fear. 
I mean, if, if we boil it down and we think about even in character development sense of characters typically acting out of a center of fear or love, um, that's typically going to be the base of why they're doing what they're doing or not doing what they're doing. It's the same thing with us as, as, as humans. It's, you know, fear of criticism, fear of, of rejection, um, you know, and then I'm sure mixed in there, there's probably some, some, some fear of, of success, you know, fear that they're, again, that their light is brighter than they thought it was. And now are you going to step into that? You know, is that really what the change, is it really what you want? Um, cause things will come with it, of course, but I think it's, it's just plain fear. I mean, we all, we all face it. I've, I've definitely dealt with quite a bit of it in my career. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the process of looking for authors that you think have a great story. I mean, at some point you're probably, and maybe you already have gotten manuscripts from people who send them in. Is there such a thing as a manuscript that's not workable that just, you know, just isn't going to really cut it? I mean, I never think about it that way. I mean, the question is, is the manuscript right for, for our publishing house and our sort of outfit and, and what we're looking to create? That's one thing and we can work together to, to develop it and pivot it. But if, if it's on the publisher services side, where we're just helping somebody else sort of get their work developed. I don't ever really look at a work as like, yes or no. I look at it as like, how, how can we make it the best version of itself? Not what I want it to be or anybody else wants it to be, but the best version of what the, the creator has intended for the audience. And that's, yeah. that's, that's just it. I mean, and, and some stories have a higher resonance and ceiling publicly in terms of sales than others, but that doesn't mean that each story doesn't have value when it's the best version of itself. You know, going back to a point that we touched on earlier, there are books that are, you know, they're absolutely amazing, but somehow people just don't find them. I think that's true in all corners of, of creatives, right? Um, what in your experience do you see as the main reasons that some authors are, are successful and others just don't seem to be? I think it's a part of it is that there's two sides to publishing. There's storytelling and there's story selling. And they're both, they're both equally important if you want to do it as a career. Now, if you just want to put something out for your family or leave it as like a, a time capsule item, um, that's, that's totally fine and that's valid and that's awesome. But if you really are passionate about um, making this uh, a living for you, then you have to be, if, if you're not passionate about it and you don't want to do it, that's fine. It's just, you have to know that it needs to be done by someone. Um, you need to either try to work with someone, partner with someone and hire someone, give someone a percentage of your book sales or whatever they bring in a commission. Um, but I, I think often that latter part, this, the story is selling is, is neglected because honestly, the storytelling in and of itself is exhaustive. It can be exhausting. Yeah. Oh, I say. Um, it's, it sounds like it. Yeah. It, it can be a marathon. And by the time you, you finally get to a book that you're happy with and you feel good about, um, if you reach that point, then you're just kind of tired. It's like you, you're a marathon runner who's just finished a marathon. You just want to lay down. And then there's another marathon in front of you where it's like, well, now you have to get this in front of people who you think might benefit from it. And so I, I really think it's just not appreciating and honoring and, and really respecting the fact that just as hard as you work to make this thing, 
you're going to have to work as hard, maybe harder to actually get it in front of folks and help them know that it exists. Well, so let's say there are some budding authors out there in our audience. What kinds of things should they think about if they really want to write a book? And let's say it's a good book, but what are the kinds of things that are that you need to be prepared to do if you want your book to be successful or you want to make a career out of this? Well, there's sort of two main like pathways. Of course, you can go independent published or independently published or traditionally published. Each pathway has sort of a different set of things you need to do next. If you're thinking about traditionally published, the first thing I always recommend any author of any genre do is please get a professional editor to look at your work. And this isn't just an editor for copy editing and grammar and punctuation and spelling. We're talking character development, plot, pacing, theme, genre readiness. Like, is it appropriate for the genre that you think it is, it's in? All of these good things. Because honestly, if you're submitting to an agent or a publisher, you know, at, we, we mentioned the, the percentages earlier on in, in the show, but it, the, the numbers are already going to be difficult enough. You want to make sure you're showing up to the interview with your best self. So you want the best version of your body of work in front of that agent or that editor, because you might not get another chance. And so coming with your best foot forward, at least gives you the knowledge where if this doesn't work out, then maybe it just wasn't the right fit, right time, what have you. And then you can always back into independently published. And um, if you're going independently published, then same thing, professional editor. But then after that, really think about um, once the inside of the book is done, really think about art, design, the book cover, of course, but also your go-to-market strategy. How are you going to get this in front of people? How are you going to market it and really spend some time putting on your business hat? so that your book can have a chance in a very, very crowded marketplace. Every art marketplace is crowded right now. Music is crowded. Uh, TV film is crowded. So is publishing. So how are you going to stand out amongst the crowd just a little bit? Yeah. Can you be, you know, kind of behind the scenes and promote it only socially? Or do you need to be comfortable? Do you think being somebody who goes out talks to people, does readings, book signings, that sort of thing? Um, I think there's there's multiple pathways. I do think now more than ever, um, publishers and, and people are interested in not just the stories, but the storytellers, largely because we have so much visible access to people we didn't really have before, yeah. social media and the internet. And yeah. so I think because of that, um, I think it can be a backwind to your publishing career. If you are someone who's comfortable with doing readings, with doing signings, with doing like appearances and events, but I would never say it's an ultimatum. I don't really like to speak in absolutes. I, I'm, I'm sure you can have a, a fantastic career and, and, and be sort of um, to yourself. Um, but I will say when it comes to the most successful authors I've seen, my mother included, there's a level of, um, I don't want to say showmanship, but you, you got you to gotta get on the road like, or you got to get in front of people. Right now it's via Zoom and that's fine, but you, you, you do, it just benefits a career. But I, I wouldn't say that's the only way to do it. I wouldn't go so far as saying that. You know, the publishing industry, at least to me, has always seemed kind of glamorous. Um, but what are some of the realities you've learned about the publishing industry? And, you know, what, if there are others listening who might be interested in that path, what, what do you think they should know? 
Well, I'll start with what's really exciting about the publishing industry, which I mean, now more than ever, creatives have direct access to the market in, in ways that just didn't really largely exist or were viable, should I say, you know, even just 15 years ago. So, I mean, now you can have a sustainable living making books and not be traditionally published. Like you can be totally fine outside of the main machine. So I think that's what's exciting. I think traditional publishing as, as a whole is a very old system. It's a big ship that with a small rudder, it turns slowly. And then because of that, there are a lot of opportunities in the market that I don't know if a lot of traditional publishers are quite yet positioned to take take advantage of and do better. So for example, one of the reasons why I wanted to start Jesse B Creative is because growing up in the publishing industry, I saw how little royalties authors were taking home. And royalties are where most authors are gonna, are gonna make their living. The advance is great, but that's a one-time lump sum upfront payment and it's still an advance against your royalties. So if I give you a $300,000 advance, you won't collect a dime in royalties until I, as the publisher, have earned all 300000 back. And most 75% of books don't earn out, which means only 25% of authors are actually getting, getting to the royalty phase. And then even when they get there, they're looking at 3 5 7 9% on net, not even on gross. So wow. it's, it's, it's like, you know, it, it makes it, you have to sell a lot of volume to really make it you know, substantial. And so um, I think there's an opportunity, like we, we offer double what the industry average starts at for our artists, because we want, we believe that if a great artist gets a chance to get to their third, fourth and fifth book, if they can afford to continue making art in this space, um, you're typically going to get more carryover. Their name's going to have more traction because they have more work out in the market. And they're probably going to be getting better and better at their craft. And so everybody benefits if we can just make it more sustainable. There's such a high turnover in publishing where even authors who have won awards have to step out of the industry or leave to go find employment that actually gives pays them the, the money they need, pays the bills, yeah. right? You Puts know? food on their table. I mean, I saw my mom after being a New York Times bestselling author have to work at Best Buy for two years. You know, it's oh, you're um, kidding. I kid you not. I mean, it it's and maybe it wasn't two years, it may have been a little shorter than that, but it was still one of those things. And I admired the hell out of her for that because she's always been the person to just get it done. Like it's not about posturing or accolades. It's just like, what do we need to do? Um, I'm willing to do it. And um, I appreciate her for that. But I mean that that shouldn't that shouldn't even be a thing. You know, that shouldn't even be a thing. Yeah. Uh, so, but I hear is. I hear you, but boy, the world for creatives is it is a very tough world, and it's not mm -hmm. just children's books or publishing. It's pretty mm -hmm. much every corner. Mm -hmm. What what for you has been the best part about having your own business, Jesse? Uh, the the biggest thing I'm most passionate about in terms of 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 what I hope to how I hope to serve is just creating pathways of access and opportunity um, and equity. And I think ownership, which is why I knew I wanted to uh, have a publishing house as opposed to just being an author on the roster um, exclusively, was that I would actually be in a position to offer somebody else an opportunity and help them get their voice and their story and their dream out there. And that that's just infinitely rewarding to me. 
people have such great stories. I, there are so many awesome stories I've been fortunate to come across and scripts and illustration talent. And um, can you talk about any of those successes? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, we have um, a property right now that we actually um, teed up for um, uh, another publisher because ours was our plate was pretty full. Um, but we had developed it and and we had started shopping it through. I'm, I'm represented personally through Serendipity Literary Agency and Regina Brooks, who is a phenomenal um, agent. And so anything that I don't necessarily have capacity to put under my own or I think would be better suited for Regina to shop to her contacts because she's awesome. Um, we'll do that. And we have this really amazing story um, co-written by uh, the lead writer on it was Karina Ho, um, a, a differently abled Chinese American woman. And the, the book is about a differently abled Chinese American girl who wants to dance in her school talent show. She uses a wheelchair, this girl. Um, and she lives in a very homogenous town, think Pleasantville. Um, and she wants to dance and, and sort of show what makes her her besides sort of what people see. Like she, she wants to see, she wants them to see her for her passion and the things that she loves and her talents, as opposed to just her wheelchair. Um, and so, yeah. And that's a story right now that that's, that's being hotly shopped. And, um, and literally that was an example of an author who hadn't thought of necessarily writing a children's book and hadn't written before. And we worked together over the course of 18 months, along with Monica Paola Rodriguez from Puerto Rico, who did all the illustrations and we pulled together this property that we are just super proud of. Sounds like a great story. Yeah. What's been the hardest part the, so far, at least? The hardest part, I mean, and this, this is typical, it's just distribution and, and financing, right? For us, we were lucky to be self-sustaining. Um, our sales, publisher services, and then a, a workshop that we run has allowed us to be totally self-sustaining. But if we wanted to sort of trampoline to the next stratosphere, we would need a capital injection or a partnership. Um, what I'm so grateful for now is that we are partnered with, with UWISH and a lot of the properties that we have vetted, developed, created, have a, 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 an ecosystem to, it has like a Disney to enter, um, a, world, a Disney of its own to enter. And um, having that pipeline, having that partnership, it just benefits everybody. You know, they get content, we get amplification, distribution, celebrity connections, all of that stuff. So this really is such a blessing to be working with them on their properties because I think it benefits everybody. What keeps you going when you hit inevitable speed bumps or rough patches in the road? Simply put, just reminding myself that I work for kids. You know, I think in the business realm uh, of children's publishing, you can get caught up thinking about, oh, the editors and the agents and, you know, the public, the other publishers and, the you know, the schools and the, the parents. And at the end of the day, I, I work I for work. kids. You know, if, if, if I keep them reading and engaged and entertained and happy and informed and all of that jazz and we have a good time and, and they enjoy reading and they lean into it, um, we'll be fine. <laughs> you know, but you can't lose sight of who you work for. And I work for children. That is a wonderful, wonderful perspective. I love that. Well, talk about some of the initiatives, the current initiatives you have, or maybe things that you have planned for the near future. Yeah, there are, there are 
three things on that list that I'm, that I'm fairly excited about. Um, one, we have a workshop that we launched uh, a month, a year ago this month, um, last October, where we take a group of kids, typically fourth and fifth graders, and we take them through the process of creating a real children's picture book. Um, we as a collective wow. create one book. It is matched with a professional writer and illustrator to, to flesh out whatever's left after we finish our workshop. And then we produce a market grade ready book. So the idea is that this is going to look like any other professionally published book on the bookshelf. Um, what's wow, so cool, cool about is that super fun. The kids get their names, they get publishing credits. Um, the bulk of the proceeds go back to the hosting school or organization that sort of um, sponsored the workshop so they can use it for supplies or field trips or infrastructure, whatever they feel they need help with their school. They get a, a big book sale royalty to actually do so. Um, and so super proud of that program. We partnered with, with folks like Pixar on that and they, they helped us with, with a few of the workshops or one of the workshops. And so super proud of that program, still going strong, um, working with PayPal right now where we're creating a children's book about innovation. So this is the first time I've done it with adults and that's a lot of fun. Um, so that's one. Number two is our newest release called Bunso Meets Amumu and it explores Filipino mythology through humor, action, heart. The author illustrator of that series is Filipino American. Um, that just released. And when I tell you, it's one of the funniest children's book series that I've ever read. I'm so proud I, to be able to acquire it. I love the title. The title alone <laughs> just sounds hilarious. Yeah. So Rev was educating me that a mumu is essentially the Filipino boogeyman. It's what parents use to uh. scare kids into doing what they want them to do, like eat your vegetables or go to bed on time or put down that ice cream. <laughs> um, they say, you know, stop, stop drawing on the walls or else the mumu will get you. And so, and so things like that. And so Bunsu has an encounter with the mumu and finds out that the mumu isn't quite how his parents and family had painted the mumu and, um, uh, and yeah, it, it's really fun. Uh, so super, super proud of that. And then the third thing that I'll mention is just working with this character um, for you wish the lead character is called black Santa. And it, it just, it, it's such a fun character, such a fun universe. It presents an alternative and, and a different perspective to ethnicity of this sort of heralded holiday character and what that might look like. And um, we also have a picture book coming out with, for Black Santa and his partner, Cece, that comes out in about a month, about a month. I, I love it because, <laughs> I mean, you think of all these uh, so-called traditional stories and fairy tales. I mean, uh, there aren't many marginalized characters in there, unfortunately. So it's mm -hmm. good that um, it's good that there are, there are people out there doing a different take on some of them. For sure. For sure. I mean, to be reimagined, to be expanded. Right. And just to make these things more inclusive. Absolutely. Um, there are so many different walks of sheets. There's so much life on the planet. And I think it's just sort of important to make sure they feel seen and heard and respectfully reflected. Yeah. Well, looking back, what, as in your journey as an entrepreneur, what advice would you give to other people starting out just, just to, as entrepreneurs? I think we are living in such an amazing time to be an entrepreneur because of all of the 
all of the, the self-teaching that can happen. You can initiate your own learning curve. You can decide you're curious about something and then you can begin without anybody else sort of helping you or, or pushing you down that path to start learning. There are podcasts if you want to learn about finance and accounting or business where some of the, some of the best minds, some of the most respected minds are just giving away their wisdom, giving away their tried and true methods. There are books available everywhere. There are articles. You know, YouTube. There's YouTube, right? And so I think one of the- Oh my goodness, there's there's a YouTube video for, I don't know, I can't even believe it, how much there is out there. No, there's so many. And so I think the biggest chunk of advice that I've learned personally that I really value is own your learning curve, like, and be proactive about it. If there's something you're curious about, if you want to get better at something, own your learning curve. And then number two is, um, just value, value team. Like if, if you're, if you want to grow big, if you want to be sustainable, you're going to need some sort of help at some point and just really lean into identifying what it is. Maybe you either don't want to do, or you're, you're not the best person to do and just value others and their experience and what they have to offer, but be proactive about both of those things, finding help and, learning up yourself about the things that can help make you a better artist and a better business person. Phenomenal advice. Well, we're almost out of time, Jesse. The time has just flown by. I want to make sure you have a chance to share with people how to get in touch with you if they're interested maybe in finding more about the books you've published or your books or just chatting with you about about your journey or maybe they're an author and they or an illustrator and they'd like you to take a look at some of their work what's the best way for them to get in touch and find out more that's awesome the best way to get in touch honestly is via instagram i'm there at our company is there at jesse b creative j-e-s-s-e-b as in boy creative also the same for the website jessebcreative.com if you want to check out any of our books We are a Black-owned children's book publisher focusing largely on children's picture books, and we reflect marginalized communities um, in our work, and our work is made by marginalized communities. So um, we're having a great time. It's it's a lot of fun, and there's so many great stories coming down the pipeline from just awesome creators who are finally getting a chance. I love your enthusiasm. I was smiling almost the whole time during our (laughs) chat, and so... I thank you for that. <laughs> no, thank you. This is this has been great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jesse, and for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Likewise for your time as well. And thank you for having me, Joyce. Thanks, especially to all of my listeners. You're the reason I do this. Now, you can find more helpful information and resources for entrepreneurs on my website, my consulting website, which is globalocityservices.com. And I also have a new website for the radio show itself, thesavvyentrepreneur.org. And you'll find there blogs, tools, podcasts, and all sorts of other resources that are free. My door is always open. I'd love to hear from you. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, or just want to shoot the breeze, you can always email me at dnagel at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. You'll always get a response back from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.